Hello and welcome to Snow Country Stories Japan. I'm your host, Peter Carnell, a tour guide and writer based in Nagano, and this is a podcast about life and travel in Japan's legendary Yukiguni. Today we head to the very north of the snow country into Tohoku. That's the northeastern part of Japan's main island of Honshu, and then on to the most northern of Japan's main islands, Hokkaido. Historically considered wild and untamed, places of different people, cultures, and gods, and it is here that we encounter the god bears of northern Japan. In this episode, I speak with David Lakeman, a doctoral candidate at Sophia University in Tokyo, about the historical and contemporary practice of bear worship in Japan. David explains that bear worship goes way back, and the fact that bear worship continues to this day in Japan is revealing, to say the least. It puts a spotlight on the fact that there is more than one story in Japan. And for a country that rests on a neatly pamphleted official narrative that it is one people, one culture, that might just not be the case. As we discuss, bear worship is a traditional practice that delineates cultural regions practiced by culturally and often ethnically distinct peoples that once populated the North, people that remain to this day. This episode deals with traditional practices that result in the physical death of bears, considered to be gods or manifestations of gods, if my understanding is correct. We discuss how that occurs, including ritualistic aspects of the death and consumption of the bear. That means that this episode may not be suitable for all audiences, and for that reason, I ask for your discretion as to whether you want to listen to it. I present it with no judgment and do not intend it to be voyeuristic or sensational, but with a genuine belief that it is of value in drawing attention to the important stories of minority cultures within Japan, many of which are most visible in the snow country. I hope it also motivates you to learn more and to visit the snow country to experience these cultures firsthand. David and I discuss peoples including the Matagi and Ainu cultures. Neither of us are Matagi or Ainu, and we do not speak on their behalf. My questions are asked from a place of true interest, and it is my sincere intention that all questions are appropriate and engaging, while David's answers are based on his own research and observations. I hope this episode piques your interest in the Matagi, Ainu, and other peoples who practice bear worship in Japan, and in other countries for that matter. In the second half of the interview, David provides recommended reading and sites in Japan that can be visited. To learn more about bear worship and the cultures of the Matagi and Ainu. I hope you enjoy. My guest on the podcast today is David Lakeman, a doctoral candidate at Sophia University in Tokyo, researching octolatry or bear worship in the Japanese archipelago, a topic which might not be that familiar to you, but for that reason, I think is a fascinating one and opens up. Uh, the unique cultures and traditions of northern Japan. So, David, thank you for making time to speak with me today. And how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you, sir. How are you?、Uh, I'm very well. Thank you.、Uh, David, before jumping into the conversation and discussing bear worship in Japan, would you mind introducing yourself?、Uh, where are you from and how did you end up here? Well, I'm Dave Lakeman. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I went away and got my first BA at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. I was in political science. I didn't really know what to do with that. So, some years later, I went back and got a second BA at Arizona State. And that was in history and still wasn't sure what to do about that. But at some point, I learned about what's called the Sankabetsu Higumajiken, an infamous series of bear attacks that occurred in 
1915 in northwestern Hokkaido. And I was like, hey, I should write a book about that. So <laughs> I go there and I'm doing all this field work and go to all these places and start writing a book effectively and realize it's more of an academic work. So I decide to go back and get my MA in history at Arizona State and wrote all about the Sankabetsu Bear incident. And some years later, just powered by inertia at that point, I guess, here I am in Tokyo learning about Japanese bears and bear worship. So you're based in Tokyo, but your research takes you into you know, regional Japan quite often. Is that, is that correct? Yes, sir. I often go to Akita or Iwate or uh, Hokkaido. The thing that you are researching is octolatry, a word that I had to look up after you dropped it into conversation. Um, this might be a hard question to answer, but can you give a brief overview of what octolatry is? Sure. It's a smashing together of two words that people probably have heard that we have the root arcto or arctos, which if you think of places like the Arctic, that's the place of the bear, because that's where you can see the Ursus constellations and olatry, like idolatry means the worship of. So it's the worship of bears. And it's something which is not unique to Japan. It's practiced across different North Eurasian communities, if my understanding or my reading prior to this interview is correct, including the Okots culture. And so just to help listeners get their bearings, can you explain which groups practice it and where we're talking about? Bear worship is perhaps one of humanity's oldest organized religions that as early as we have evidence for in Eurasian caves in the Paleolithic period, tens of thousands of years ago, people were doing something that looks a lot like organized religion that involved bear skulls, mm. the burial of bear skulls, the etching of bear skulls, the erection of stone plinths to put bear skulls on the reverential, very anatomically accurate painting in ochre on cave walls of bears and bear activity. The body of evidence and the artifacts and the orientation of their interment seems to overwhelmingly indicate that ancient people across northern Eurasia, Siberia, Scandinavia, North America, Canada, were involved in this giant arctolactric complex. Mm. One of the themes I like to talk about in this podcast, I think often in Japan there is a, a narrative which is kind of repeated, that Japan is a very homogenous culture. The fact that you're talking about this, that this uh, relates to Japan, but actually goes much broader in the Northern Hemisphere, actually underpins the fact that Japan's culture is actually connected and influenced, just like any other culture from abroad. Um, and it's been going back a hell of a long time that this has been happening. So when we're talking about octolatry in Japan, which areas in Japan are we, uh, are, we, are we discussing? The easy answer is north of the Tsugaru Kaikyo, north of the Tsugaru Strait in Hokkaido, or if you want to go back to when Sakhalin Island was part of Japan, when it was Karafuto Prefecture in the, the Ainu, or in pre-modern times to, as you mentioned, the Okotsk culture and the Moyoro people who lived between the 7th and 12th centuries in these areas. But even south of there, we still have evidence of things like the Matagi culture and the Yamadachi 
foresters and hunters of Iwate Prefecture. And even beyond there, we have stuff like the bear kagura of many parts of Tohoku. And if you've ever heard of the Yamabushi and Shugendo, that there are rites and doctrines and statues and practices in Shugendo that directly or sometimes less directly invoke or refer to or imply some degree of dissent or acknowledgement of this ancient bear god. But in terms of contemporary octolatry, you mentioned Hokkaido and Tohoku. So Hokkaido, just for listeners in case you're not familiar, Hokkaido is the northernmost of the, the main Jap- Japanese islands, a very large island to the north, and then Tohoku, which is the northeastern uh, area of Japan's main island of Honshu, which roughly overlaps with the area that I'm talking about in this podcast when I talk about snow country. If we say that roughly, would you do, would you agree with that? The the contemporary practice of bear worship is um, effectively restricted to the snow country areas of Japan. That's where it's certainly most visible and easy to find uh. empirical somatic evidence. <laughs> certainly today, there is a body of scholarship that reflects this belief that there are really two Japans, the upland Japan and the lowland Japan. And that when we want to find some symbol of what belief and life and cosmology exists in upland Japan, we have the bear. As you spoke there, you mentioned two different people, the Ainu, who are an ethnically and culturally distinct people who uh, predominantly lived and still live in Hokkaido. Uh, and some other areas of Japan, it's worth mentioning, and the Matagi, who are a culturally distinct hunting community who live in Tohoku. Uh, Again, am I correct in saying that? And can you go into a little detail as to who the Ainu are and who uh, the Matagi are? Thousands of years ago, during the last glacial maximum, when there were land bridges exposed by lower sea levels and ice bridges between islands and continents created by frozen oceans, People from northeastern Eurasia, probably following game, crossed over to the areas that are now Sakhalin Island, Hokkaido, and uh, the Kurile Archipelago. And they populated the entirety of the Japanese archipelago, although it looked quite different today. There are fewer islands, and at some point, Hokkaido was even connected to Honshu. There are other waves of population that came later from Korea and maybe even up from from the Okinawan or the Ryukyuan archipelago. But these early people, because if we remember, we have this evidence of this ancient widespread Paleolithic bear cult brought with them this mimetic weight of bear worship. And they spread across the entire archipelago. And in Hokkaido, they sort of divided into two large groups is how mm-hmm. historians and archaeologists talk about them. Mm-hmm. The Okhotsk people who lived around the rim of the Okhotsk Sea, which is north of Hokkaido, and the Satsumo culture, which is more inland and south of there. And that persisted for many centuries. And after centuries of cohabitation, enough mixing and melding and intermingling, we get the Ainu culture. So that's who lived and to some extent does still live in what they called Ezo, or, uh, or if you were an Ainu, the Ainu Moshir, 
which is a term we might refer to again later. And south of the Tsugaru Strait, once those areas separated, they were the Emishi, this other group that shows up a lot in centuries-old war records from Japan of the Yamato people fighting these wars of conquest against the wild people in the north. So I want to be careful here because it's my first time really delving into this topic of t- talking about the Ainu and the Matagi, and I'm um, I'm certainly uh, somebody who has a limited knowledge of, of both of those cultures, and I don't want to generalize about either of them. So can we distinguish between the Ainu and the Matagi and maybe comment on how they differ and the difference in the, the role of bear worship plays for each group? Definitely. So the origins of the Matagi are, uh, uh, speaking of living disciplines that people have different opinions on, that's certainly one there. They have their own legends of how maybe they were the survivors of the Battle of Dan-no-ura, led into the mountains by a magical wolf, or that some people suggest that the Burakumin, this discriminated against lower caste people who, because of certain Buddhist and Shinto precepts of uncleanliness, were shunned from society and they created their own hamlet. And also because of some of their language that still exists and the place names that are in these Matagi villages and the words, what they call yama, uh, Yamakotoba, the words they use when they're hunting are often the same or at least quite similar to Ainu Itak, the language of the Ainu. So there's at least a suggestion that Ainu people migrating south or some of these early Amishi people may have provided the foundation of some of these Matagi communities. Are there specific rituals and traditions practiced by each group today that revolve around bear worship? Yes, the, the two specific ones that I think will make the distinction most clear are for the Matagi, the Kuma Matsuri, and for the Ainu, the bear Iomante. Now, with the Matagi Kuma Matsuri, because so much of their communal life revolves around hunting, there are prayers and rituals and offerings before, during, and after the hunt that involve proscribed methods of butchery and dressing the animal, how and when the flesh can be consumed, how the flesh is to be divided, who may consume which portions, that sort of thing. And there certainly is a religious aspect to it that sometimes there's a bear god directly invoked and sometimes there is a mountain god invoked and that we can understand the bear to be an aspect of that. But then let's compare that to the bear Iomante of the Ainu, which is at least mentally different. The first stage of the Iomante begins really begins the year prior to the event. That Ainu hunters would hunt bears, usually in dens that had been identified at an earlier point, go in and slay the bear. If the bear would, is a pregnant or a, a recently pregnant sow, because female bears generally give birth while they're in their hibernatory den, they would have a cub with them. If that was the case, they would kill the mother and bring the cub back with them to their community, where for a year or two would be raised and sort of as a child, sort of as a pet, fed 
washed, played with, walked, sometimes given human breast milk to nourish it. But then when the bear was kind of getting to be dangerous, it was time for the Iomante. So to understand the purpose and the thought process behind this, we first have to kind of delve into the, the Ainu theology. Now, the Ainu universe is divided into, we can call them almost two dimensions. And the, the word for that or world or realm is Moshir. And where we live, where the humans live and the animals live and the Ainu live is the Ainu Moshir. But the fates and the, the divine influences and the fortunes of the world are largely controlled by a pantheon of powerful divine beings, the Kamui, that live in the Kamui Moshir. So the question is, by what mechanism do the Kamui in the this separate dimension influence the events of men? So to do this, if they if you're a powerful Kamui and you wish to give unto the Ainu whom you love gifts of flesh and fur, you would like to give them a bear. How do you do that? Well, the Kamui is possessed of a sort of divine and immortal spirit element, the Ramat. And what it does is it girds its Ramat in what is called, in the Ainu language, the Hayokpe, which literally means armor. But you or I would recognize the armor to be a bear's body. So what these Kamui do is they wrap themselves, they become a bear effectively, and descend to the Ainu Moshir, where they are beneficent enough to allow themselves to be captured and raised with the intent that at some point their death will come and their body will feed the Ainu and their fur will clothe them. So the Ilmante is less of a sacrifice because it's not a propitiation, it's not an um, a piacular event where you're doing some sort of exculpatory act, but you're releasing. And sometimes it's called the, the bear sending. So at the Iomante, there are various variations in the Ainu religion varies over time and over region. But the, the classic example is that the bear is led from its log cage, the heperasetsu, and certain prayers and libations are given unto it and it's thanked. Oh, thank you so much for, for coming and playing with us. The word play is often used. Like we're going to, you've come to play with us and we will play with you on this great feast day. It's, mm. it's led into a sort of a circular slaughter site where it's fixed to a post with these long ropes. And then after various invocations by priests and elders, a series of blunt uh, bamboo arrows are fired at the bear, which naturally enrages it and it, it roars and it writhes. But if, if you're a pious Ainu person, you don't understand this as 
fear or distress. You understand this as incipient joy because the Kamui knows that it is going to be sent back to its divine realm. And so finally, there are, is a, a fusillade of sharpened bamboo arrows that, if it, that kill the bear or if it doesn't dispatch it completely, large wooden beams are brought forth and placed about the throat and the back of the neck of the bear where the community engages in a communal act of throttling so that all may partake of this grand moment where they send the bear, where they send the kamui back to the kamui moshiri, back to heaven with great thanks and gifts of food and sake and inao, these carved sticks, which are very pleasing to the kamui. And then there are all sorts of a series of games and sporting contests and speeches and prayers. So here is the prayer that is recited when the bear is led from its cage. Our dearest bear deity, we've reared you with tender loving care as if you were our own child. But in line with the custom, we will let you play outside and send off your spirit. We will prepare a new body for you so that you can return to your parents. So please behave well and play in a manner for which you will be loved. So from this and some other prayers, we get the idea that it's obviously cyclical, that the idea is you treat the bear or the kamui in a way that will make it wish to return annually. And so there's, we've treated you well, so please come back. Mm. Also, we've treated you well, so please tell your family and friends of how well you have been beloved and honored by us. And in the sending off, you have the actual death of the bear, which, as said, you said, is not considered to be a sacrifice, but returning it to where it wants to go to is the way it's designed to work. But also, I can only assume that the consumption of, of the flesh plays a massively important role. And you said it's shared across the community, men, women, children. Yes, sir, that's right. And there is a prescribed manner of you know, elders eat first on the, the choicest cuts. But throughout all of this, because when a kamui is released, it does not return immediately to its realm. It lingers about the bear's body. Uh. And from the bear's body, after it is slain, the head and its uh, a sort of a cape-like raiment of its pelt is folded into a bundle and placed on this treasure altar of the village headman because Ainu homes have a few distinct features. The the hearth that has a a permanent and female deity because the hearth is the godly protector of the Ainu home and a raised altar where treasures that are imported goods like lacquerware and steel blades are held. And they place 
on this altar of respect and treasure, the, the bundle of this bear's head, and the Kamui lingers about. And so while the people are partaking of the bear's flesh, they offer it other food. They offer it sake. They um, offer it millet cakes. They offer it walnuts. That the, the flesh is usually like the, 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 what you think of, the, I don't know, the bear steaks are consumed in different ways, usually grilled uh, by the elders. And then there are, they may also consume raw sliced bear liver. And then afterwards, and on the second day, a, a, a stew of organs is commonly prepared, of which everybody partakes. Even if you're, a, a, if you can eat solid food, you get some of the this almost bare nabe. It's my understanding, though, David, there are now laws regulating or restricting the practice of the iomante. I think that's a somewhat legally unsettled question. My my understanding is that for a long time, the animal welfare laws prohibited the killing of animals in a ritual way. However, there have been, in the past, I don't know, a couple decades, certain carve-outs for traditional ways to do this or for things that were deemed intangible cultural heritage practice. So things like that might fall under the, the purview of these legal carve-outs. So you can't go and just say, I'd like to go see an Iomante. Let me call up my Ainu friend and go see it. Mm. But presumably in some places they are transpiring, but it's also become, I've read interviews and talked to some people who it's fallen out of favor to some extent. I think that like, are we going to, are we going to really kill this bear? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that seems like a like a bummer. We we want to preserve our language and our religion and our tr- tradition, but it's uh, in a kinetic state. David, through your research, you've had the opportunity to spend extended periods with these communities, um, and Japan being a country that often promotes its cultural homogeneity, these are distinct peoples and divergent stories from that normal narrative people here. So has your research affected the way that you view Japan and its people and its culture? It, it might not be the, the cool and interesting answer, but but I came, I'd lived in Japan for a little while before without knowing too much about it. And then I went and got a master's degree basically in Japanese history, where I'd be, I learned about the, the, the ancient times where the origins of the Yamato state and things like that, Jimu and Himiko, on which I am not an expert, admittedly, at all. But you, you understand it was never just one people of Wa, even if that's how we get it in the Chinese chronicles. It was more like the Baltics or something like, or, or the Balkans, rather, where there were all these the tribes and areas with their different gods and their own languages and ways of farming or hunting, or however they were living. And through just centuries of conquering and uh, exposure to each other, it became pseudo-monolithic, but that's a relatively recent development in human history. And of course, I live in Tokyo now, so it's I just see this sprawl of concrete and packed earth parks and apartment buildings everywhere. So I am reminded when I go 
and talk to people in Karuizawa or in Sapporo or someplace else that, that's not a big metropolis, that there are there are different Japans that are have their own very distinct, very different ways of living. And not just cultures and people that are uh, spoken about in the historic records. These are contemporary cultures and groups remaining in Japan today that have distinct identities and are worth exploring. And often to find them, often to interact, you've got to get outside. The big cities like Tokyo, they probably have a presence there too, but they're most identifiable in these regional areas. And on that note, if anyone were interested in learning more or visiting Matagi or Ainu sites in Japan? Are there places they can go to do so? Yes. We we talk about a lot of Matagi history and culture in Akita Prefecture. If you want to learn about their hunting dogs, of course, Odate, the birthplace of Hachiko, and the Akita Ken. There are some nice visitor centers. You can go and learn about the breeding of them. But right next to there, there's a long railway the Akita interior goes to nowhere railway or something like that. It goes from Kakunodate to Kita Akita. Animatagi, for example, is where it stops. And in Animatagi, there's, I think, the only dedicated Matagi museum, which is connected startlingly to an onsen resort. So you can go and stay in the onsen resort go to the Matagi Museum, see their guns and their scrolls and bear items and clothing made out of bear claws and fur. And I think they also have events, though I haven't participated in them, where you can meet Matagi people and they will walk you through the woods and tell you about what the plants are used for or drink some doburoku with them, this thick, almost yogurt-like consistency sake that's made there. So... That would be, I think, a very neat trip. Now, if you want to go learn about the Ainu, we have to, of course, mention Upopoi. So Upopoi is the National Ainu Museum, and it's only been open since 2020. It's in Shiraoi, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour by rail from Nuchitose Airport. We didn't talk too much about it, but... In the Meiji period, there was a colonization effort of Hokkaido. These various organizations, the Tondenhe and the Kaitakushi, wanted to change for various geopolitical purposes, like protect against Russia and not get colonized by European or North American countries. We need to have agriculture. We need to have industry. Where are we going to do that? We're going to do that in Hokkaido. So we have to modernize it, colonize it, make lots of ranches, farms, timber which was tough for the people who lived there for centuries, at least in the interior, the Ainu. In the Meiji period, it really came to a, an acute point in 18, the 1890s, where there was something called the Hokkaido Former Aborigines Act that on its surface was like supposed to be beneficent and modernize the Ainu and teach them Japanese language and get them involved in industry. But it also had the effect of, well, intended, I'm sure, uh, really sanding away the distinctiveness of their language, of their facial tattoos, because women would have large facial tattoos, of their hunting and their fishing practices. 
Uh, and so because it became difficult to subsist, some Ainu communities became what we called Kanko Kotan. And Kanko in Japanese is tourism, and a Kotan is the Ainu Itak word for a village. So where Ainu people would still live, but visitors were allowed to come and see how dances were performed, music was played, they would sometimes do mock iomantes. And in Shiraoi uh, was one of these. And it became the site of the National Ainu Museum, which is this huge infrastructure project with uh, an enormous, almost brutalist architecture. And there have been controversies about it. Certainly some people see it as recognition and the promotion of the diversity of indigenous cultures in the Japanese North. But also some communities have expressed outrage, frankly, that we don't want our history, our language, our religion to be reduced to a tourist attraction. And there's also been controversy about the mausoleum there, sort of ossuary. So it's certainly a good modern museum. You could meet Ainu people, learn the basics of their language, learn a lot about bear worship. But I would also pair it with a visit to Nibutani. Mm. Now, Nibutani is the home or was the home of the late Kayano Shigeru. And Kayano Shigeru <clears throat> was an Ainu man who was an activist for the preservation of Ainu culture and language. And he was... Uh, the first officially openly Ainu descendant member of the Japanese diet. And one of the things he's really remembered for is the Nibutani Dam case, because there's this valley adjacent to this town of Nibutani where all these Ainu important archeological sites were. And they were gonna build a dam. And he's, Shigeru Kaino is like, but you're gonna flood our communities and our people's history. And there was a protracted court case where all sorts of impassioned pleas were made for and against the dam. Ultimately, the dam was built. So you can go and see that dam. It's there today. But also right near there are all sorts of Ainu craftsmen and also Shigeru Kaino's house where you can learn about him and see his collections and learn about his activism. So that would, I think, be the a good counterpoint to the to Upopoi and Shiraoi. So I'll make sure to include links to those three sites on the show notes and the episode page for today's interview. And David, in terms of your research and what you're doing, if someone was interested in following you or learning more about uh, your research into bear worship, is there anything they can do to, to, to do so? Uh, well, certainly there are quite literally dozens of books and articles I would recommend, but I won't just list list off my <laughs> dissertation bibliography here. I'll resist the urge. Mm. Uh, I might give maybe two two names, though. Mm. I can't resist. The first, if you want to learn about the Kuma Matsuri, there's a, a gentleman at Iowa State University with whom I'm tangentially acquainted, Dr. Scott Schnell, who I think is the certainly the most prominent English language scholar working on Matagi history and culture. And he has an article, Kuma Matsuri, which if you have access to any sort of journal database, should be easy to find. And the second would be Our Land Was a Forest, which 
mentions bears in passing, but it's a great starting place to just learn about modern Ainu history. It's the personal memoir of Shigeru Kayano and talks about his early life in Hokkaido. And as for me, I certainly welcome any listeners who uh, would like to to contact me with, with questions, comments, criticisms, recommendations. I have a Twitter, which is uh, Danger Dave at the real corn job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Where not, they not can the, certainly not, get me. I know the, that, that. Not the handle I would have expected. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> and uh, also, incidentally, uh, as I'm associated with uh, Jochi Dagaku, Sophie University, I'm always doing panels and events and talks and things. Uh, on the 16th of February, I will be speaking at a small conference on global studies. And from, I think, nine in the morning till four or five in the evening, we'll be trying to hash out what is going on with this global studies discipline. And at some point, I kind of mid to late morning, will be speaking about global studies and how that affects me doing bear research. It is free. It is open to all interested parties. There is no registration required. And happening in English. Uh, yes, it is happening <laughs> in English. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Again, mm -hmm. I'll make sure to put those on. Look, David, uh, I really appreciate you making time for me uh, to speak with me today and in advance of today sending me the literature that you did. I appreciated that you did that and I, and I read through it. I hope the questions that I asked were intelligent enough not to, not to feel like you wasted your time because this is all very new to me and I found it fascinating. And as I said, I hope because I assume for a lot of listeners it's their first time um, coming in contact with this with this topic that it maybe opens up uh, their horizon in terms of what is available in Japan in terms of both travel experiences or if you have a deeper uh, interest in Japan, Japanese history, Japanese culture, that it's a very varied, very rich um, and story. Obviously not without its controversies as well, so there is that sensitivity around everything we talk about today. Uh, but I hope that people find this conversation engaging follow up on everything you've spoken about. And yeah, if you're in Tokyo for the symposium, get down there and get along and show a bit of a support. So David, thank you for your time and uh, all the best. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. A very big thank you to David for taking time to speak with me. Links to everything we discussed, including Nibutani, Upapoi, and the Matagi Museum are in the show notes and on the episode page of the Snow Country Stories Japan website snowcountrystories.com. As David mentioned, he will be speaking at a symposium at Sophia University's Yotsuya campus in Tokyo on February 16th, 2024. Information about this is also available on the episode page should you be interested to attend. As said, it is free, no registration is required, and talks will be in English. And you have to love the fact that he is listed on the printed material for the symposium as David Danger Lakeman. That gets full marks from me. Thanks to everyone who's listening. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you take the really brief time needed to rate the show and write a few words in review, it helps to get it noticed and promoted to other listeners. The podcast is also on Instagram, Twitter, and X. You can find it by searching Snow Country Stories Japan. The website is, of course, just snowcountrystories.com. My name is Peter Carnell. This has been Snow Country Stories Japan. I'll be back with the next episode in a couple of weeks' time. 
Until then, it's bye for now.